I believe that as a human, my success in life is 100% dependent on my ability to coordinate action with others. Now, success, I break into two pieces. I believe that success at its fundamental core is an optimized daily experience that's sustainable over time. Okay. I believe that we get it wrong in putting that success equals accomplishments, right? Set a goal and achieve it mm-hmm. is what most people would define success as. That if you set goals and achieve it, if you produce accomplishments but are miserable in the production of the accomplishments, you are not successful. So it's two sides, right? The experience of success is one half of success and the accomplishments are actually a outcome of the optimized daily experience that's sustainable over time. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. 
Pro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and former 10-year officer in the Navy SEALs who served with distinction on SEAL Team 3 is on the podcast today. He has a 100% success rate at leading and planning over 200 of the most challenging missions in the world's most intense environments. Larry Yatch is an elite leadership strategist and a creator of SEAL of the SEAL Success Programs, a collection of skill-based training workshops and courses that enable high performers to find fulfillment, connect with their teams, and make a sustainable impact in their field. On top of that, he's developing a neuroscience-based training program to help people reach new heights and achieve their potential as a leader. He has reverse engineered the behaviors that make the SEALs the most elite and connected teams on the planet and applied them to dozens of business settings. He's on the show today. Larry, how's it going, man? Welcome to the podcast. It's going great. I'm happy to be on the show. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. So I I, I want to see if this story is true. I heard that you wanted to be a fighter pilot after watching Top Gun in third grade. And then you wanted to be a fighter pilot from third grade to seventh grade until you read a book, which, according to what I heard, made the fighter pilots seem like pansies. So you decided you wanted to be a Navy SEAL, and then you went all the way and became a Navy SEAL and spent 10 years on the SEALs. Is that right? That is correct. And I'm glad that you got to say that story instead of me, since I usually have to do that myself. So thank you for that. <laughs> Good. I, I would like, you know, to hear a little bit about that, because that, that seems, I mean, how old are you in third grade? Like 10? Uh, yeah. So my I have a eight-year-old going into, going into third grade this year. So he'll be, he'll be nine by the end of the end of third grade. And I, I was born in June like him and young for the class. So I, I would have been around, I guess, eight years old. Yeah. What, what June, what? 20th. Uh, I'm June 18th. Okay. Nice. nice. So well, does your son know what he wants to do? He does not. Okay. (laughs) Which is, it's interesting you bring that up. I've never really made the connection that he, you know, he, I was about his age. Oh, I would have been almost exactly his age. Yeah moving into identifying what I wanted to do and then sticking to it from third grade on. Right. Never, never wavered from that path. Yeah. uh, From that time, you know, thinking about it now with, with having a son about that age, it's, I can see that that's a little odd, I think. (laughs) Well, you know, we all have these dreams. So when I was eight years old, I for sure wanted to be a baseball player. And I'm curious, like, what do you think, you know, all eight-year-olds have their dream of what they want to be? Maybe it's realistic, maybe it's not, but what do you think was it about you that kept you kept you going from that time to, to fulfilling your dream? I think, uh, I think it's twofold. On one side of it, I have a very focused mind uh, in that once I get 
set on something, you know, I'm very, very structured and disciplined with that almost to, I could say to a detriment Yeah, that to some degree leads into the second half of it in that uh, I have, I'm not fully on the kind of functional scale of autism, but on uh, the Asperger side of it. Okay. And that actually started showing up in uh, becoming, let's call it a problem in second and third grade. Uh, the, at least for me, how my autism shows up is in the difficulty in connecting with people and what would be kind of a normal way. Right. And I, at that eight, nine, 10 year old time frame, I think before that, uh, kids don't really care too much, but yeah. around that second, third, fourth grade is where they start caring that you're different. And so that led to uh, a lot of isolation and challenges which I think just reinforced not only that original focus, but reinforced that, that mission of protection. Uh, I think the military side of it, right. Becoming a fighter pilot, becoming a Navy SEAL was a means to be able to become very proficient and very safe, uh, being mm-hmm. able to pr- protect myself, which I think was stemmed or stemmed from that, that environment very early on. It was a survival mechanism or motivation, sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it's it, when you think I, I became a Navy SEAL out of fear, which is kind of unique to go then into an environment that is, you know, very, very dangerous environment. Yeah. I did. I think I watched an interview with the guy that shot bin Laden, Robert O'Brien. Is that his name? Yeah. Or, yeah. And he said quite a few of the Navy SEALs are guys that that just got their heart broke and they didn't know what else to do with their life. And so they decided to go into the military, do something really, you know, badass to, as a part of like, you know, getting back to whoever broke their heart. Uh, Is that true? I take a, I've taken a much deeper, uh, both look at that phenomenon again, kind of going on to what I was saying earlier, my, if my brain gets stuck on a problem, I can't, I have a hard time letting it go. I mean, it'll sit there and I'll, I'll work on it for years and years. And one of the problems that, that really bothered me, and it's not so much a problem is when things don't make sense to me, when I can't see the, the logical pattern behind them, that kind of grabs my focus and attention for a long time. And one of them was a show up at, at BUDS sealed, which is basic underwater demolition seal training, basic seal training. And the first couple of days of training, there's, you know, a handful of guys that you bet your bottom dollar are going to make it through training. And there's a handful of guys who are like, there's no way this guy's going to make it through training, not right. a chance. And at the end of training, I was wrong, which I'm not often wrong on. Wrong about like all of them? That. Not all of them. Uh, but I would say the two on either end, Okay, like the one that I was for sure, no, no chance in hell. And the other one, like, Oh my God, this is the guy that I need to, to kind of follow and be along. Cause he's, he's the one to follow. Yeah. And I think it was that extreme nature of being that wrong on either end of the spectrum that, that stuck with me. And it really bothered me as to how can this be true? How can it be true that the, the one that on paper and when you talk to him, like when you interacted with him would say 100% and the other one would say no way. Yeah. And it took it took 10 years to really understand, to, to get to what I believe is the core driver 
of what enables that success or that failure. And it all had to do with self-regulation. People say this in many different ways when it comes to SEAL training is that it's not physical, it's mental, which sounds good, but you can't do much with that. Like, well, then what on the mental side is what drives the success? Yeah. Uh, just understanding that it, it is absolutely true that the first day of training, 99% of the people that show up have the physical, the raw physical capabilities to do everything necessary to graduate. And yet saying it's mental isn't really enough, at least for me, it wasn't enough to make it functional in other areas uh, of my life or the lives of the people we work with. Mm -hmm. And it all came from this. Uh, well, let me ask you, how long do you want to go into this? Because this is, uh, I can go a good. short story, a longer one. But no, no, this is good. good. I like it. Yeah, let's go. Okay, cool. I was just checking. There is a book called Iron War. Uh, okay. This book, it was about uh, the two greatest Ironman triathlon triathletes in the world. Mm -hmm. And the it talked about their journey, which was this like 15-year journey, this crazy battle back and forth. And they had two very different training philosophies, very different mindsets and how they approached it. Ultimately, the book was about uh, perseverance and self-regulation uh, and, and went rather deep on the neuroscience of it. And that's really where I got the this key piece of insight that then sent me down a road of researching neuroscience studies around it. And the, the core premise that it talked about was that all self-regulation for a human and that self-regulation comes in the form of mental, physical, and emotional. Mm -hmm. All self-regulation is controlled by the same two parts of the brain, which is very interesting. Uh, the fact that two parts of the brain control very different versions of self-regulation, right? which led to, as I did further research, led to a couple things. Uh, one, those parts of the brain operate like all the rest of the parts of the brain, just like the cerebellum controls the baseball part of the brain. Right. And if you want to get better at baseball, you have to practice it. You have to create a density and uh, clarity of neural connections there. You have to protect those neural connections. The better you do that, the better you get at baseball. Uh, that means that for self-regulation, it's the same. You're, you're, you're either practicing perseverance, you're practicing quitting every day of your life, right? The more practice you put into that, the, the better you get with those neural connections and the better you are able to persevere. Okay. That also results in two cool things. One, if I practice self-regulation in the mental arena and then try to use that self-regulation in the physical arena, I can, right? If okay. I build power in one, I can leverage it for the other two. That's, that's really good. Like that's a good thing. The bad side of that is there's just like playing baseball. If I was to, to practice hitting hit in a say batting practice, eventually, if I did that for five hours, six hours, seven hours, eventually I'm going to start losing my ability to hit the ball based on the fact that I run out, basically run out of glucose or fuel in that part of my brain. Okay. So that's why our skill decreases over time. The same thing happens with self-regulation. You only have so much, let's call it reserves of self-regulation. 
And since they're stacked, if I use all my reserves on the physical side, I'll have nothing left on the, the mental or emotional side. Right. So that core fundamental principle really helped understand how to create systematically create more self-regulation, which I think is a foundation for, for success in an individual's life. But it really then revealed or connected two dots that I, that I had. The other dot that I had made, I had figured out uh, about a year after I graduated from Buds is that every SEAL that I had run into that was successful, if you got to know them and asked enough questions, you could find the points in their life, which generally happened very early in their life, where they experienced some sort of trauma that was kind of outside of the norm. And this is where Rob is absolutely correct, right? that what he's referring to as a broken heart is just one version of the traumas that show up. Okay. What I meant was, or what I saw is every seal that I ever met was not quite right in the head. Right. Okay. And if you dug deep enough, you could identify where they had experienced this trauma early in their life that mm. not only gave them the drive to want to do this, but more importantly, that trauma always led to a requirement to produce significant self-regulation. Okay. And so for me, it was the, the autism and bullying. I learned in, in third grade through a, a psychologist, uh, they were going to kick me out of school, learning disabilities, problem child, all that stuff. The, the psychologist, the doctor let, taught me that the kids just wanted me to react. Like if I, if I fought, I lost, right? Mm. Cause that's what they wanted. If yeah. I yelled, I lost. If I cried, I lost. They just wanted a reaction. So in my little third, third grade brain, I connected emotional response to losing. Like the, I couldn't win if by fighting, I could win by yelling, I couldn't win by crying, but I could win if, if they couldn't get any reaction out of me. And and in that point in time, I turned off all emotional reaction. And oh, wow. so I went from the kid that exploded at every, any little thing to zero reaction at all. Okay. And that time of emotional disconnection and emotional self-regulation for years was where I was building my power in self-regulation. Now, throughout my entire life, all the way through the Naval Academy, I was not I, no one would look at me and say, oh, that's a physical specimen. Like that's, uh, I was mediocre at every sport I ever did at best, like just not someone you would look at and say, that's a physically gifted individual. Right. I get to SEAL training. And as soon as I had a purpose, because every sport I did was just to pad my resume for the Naval Academy. I didn't care about swimming or wrestling or any sport, no desire, just doing it because I had to check it off. I get to buds, all of a sudden I have a strong purpose for physical self-regulation. Mm -hmm. I have massive reserves built through my emotional self-regulation. And I graduated in the top three of my class in the hardest physical thing in the world, yeah. which wouldn't make any sense that someone that, you know, they literally closed down the cross country course because I was so far behind in my first cross country race. Like I was <laughs> that bad. Like I, my third race, I'd get a cab because I got lost. Like it was horrible <laughs> performance my entire life. How yeah. could I physically perform better than the top half a percent of people in the world? Well, it's that trauma from early on gave me the drive and the desire and the need 
to build my self-regulation emotionally. And as soon as I had a strong purpose to connect that power to, I was able to apply all of the reserves of self-regulation I'd built emotionally mm. into physical self-regulation. Wow. And every SEAL I've ever met, if you dig deep enough, you can identify their, their, the thing that triggered that need to self-regulate, that building of self-regulation in one of those three domains. And then as soon as you couple that with a clear purpose, then that power of self-regulation with a purpose of what they're doing drives the performance. That's also why if you don't have that regards to how good you are, how strong you are, yeah, how smart you are, if you haven't had that, say, trauma that led to that building of self-regulation, you will not graduate. And that's yeah. why I always say that BUDS isn't about making SEALs. It's about identifying all the SEALs that exist already and getting rid of all those that aren't. That makes sense. I, I'm curious, Larry, does regarding the trauma that a lot of the SEALs have, is there any patterns or consistencies or ones that pop up, certain types of traumas that pop up or experiences more often in the SEALs teams than the average individual? The the key is not the 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 trauma or the experience of it. The key is that the, the trauma requires, whatever it is, requires the need to self-regulate, right? Okay. So for example, one of the one guy that graduated, I was like, there's no way this guy's going to graduate. He showed up 35 pounds overweight. Yeah. It, he, he, was, he was smart, but it wasn't that, like, he wasn't the smartest guy in the room. He had never seen a, a body of water bigger than a swimming pool. Like it just, just not, you'd be like, no way. Yeah, not no chance in talking to him. He grew up on a dairy farm and about somewhere in that early, you know, between four and 12, I don't remember exactly when it was, say, let's say 10 years old disease went through the herd. They lost three quarters of the herd. Uh, at that point, it was, there was no food. They had to, 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 to let go all of the ranch hands. So it was just the family every day he had to get up not knowing if he was going to eat that day other than at school do his chores go to work uh that constant fear of not enough that constant need to to work uh in not only the the on the ranch but at school mm -hmm. that over three four five years is what built that foundational reserve of self-regulation another guy uh, his brother was the star, right? Star athlete, you know, M Mr. America, all that stuff. So every day, and his, his father was very supportive of that. So every day, you know, Joe's amazing. What are you doing? You know, Sam type thing. So that, yeah. that emotional, you know, beat down on a consistent basis and yet they had a nice family. So he couldn't just become you know, a jerk that regulation required it. Another one, dad was a drunk every night. You don't know, is he going to, is he going to beat me? Is he going to beat mom? Mm -hmm. You know, being able to, to be small and self-regulate so as not to have attention, right? It, it's the quite varied stuff, but it isn't like there is a car wreck. You had a car wreck, you got better after the car wreck and you're fine. Yeah. Right. It was that thing that was that repetitive need for self-regulation, not so much the experience. 
So working with people now, like it, it seems like those are fairly common amongst all of society. You know, somebody had hardship as a child, somebody was the second son or, you know, had a superstar brother or sibling, you know, quite a few people grew up with alcoholic parents. Um, that's not rare drug, drug addicted parents. Mm -hmm. And then these individuals decided to go to the SEALs team. When working with people, do you seek to, to find whatever pain that is from their childhood? Because I would assume that there's quite a few people out there that, that have that and have just not found a way to either self-regulate it or do it in different forms of like maybe growing a business, you know, or building their career or who knows in, in, in different areas. So I'm curious, it kind of sounds like there's a lot of untapped potential in human humanity, because if it, these individuals can do that from their childhood, I think there's a lot of trauma that all humans are doing. How can more of us apply that into our lives? There's kind of two points that you brought up. I'm going to separate them out. Okay. Uh, the first one is that the one I, the Asperger's part of my brain is a pattern recognition part, right? And when I can't, when I can't find a pattern, I get stuck on it. Okay. Uh, that's also why I've challenged challenges interacting with normal people because most human behavior, at least on the surface is pattern driven, which can be scary because I, I don't know or understand what people are going to do a lot of the times. And so the, one of the patterns that I found in relation to this is anyone that has had ex, uh, produced a life of exceptional performance, uh, it follows the exact same model. So okay. as a SEAL or a special operator, uh, surgeons, right? Doctors that, and I generally say surgeons over doctors based on the fact of, uh, it takes, and sorry, if you're a doctor out there and you feel bad about what I'm saying, but the surgeons kind of are the, the seals of the medical community, right? Right. You know, we are specialists in the, the highest risk, highest focused areas. I think that's a fair thing to say professional yeah. athletes and uh, success, very successful entrepreneurs or business people. Those four domains, it's the same person with different purposes, right? So you take the core thing, if they would have, if, if I would have taken like I, one of my people I coach is uh, the top goalie in the NHL. Mm -hmm. If, if he would have decided to be a Navy SEAL, he would have been a Navy SEAL. If he would have decided to be a surgeon, he would have been a surgeon. If I would have decided to be a successful business person, I did right after the fact, right? That's, yeah. it's the same general idea. And I believe that what is the common thread between that, and I haven't been able to find any other common threads is this, uh, in significant ability of self-regulation and to have that much ability to self-regulate. I've, I've never found one that hasn't originated in a trauma that required building of self-regulation early. Like that's where I found that that pattern exists anywhere. So on one side of it, like to answer your question, there's that ability to sell. If you're going to ex excel to a very high level, odds mm -hmm. are this is in your background. And at a certain point you chose uh, in a Y in the road, you chose the, the road of uh, this is going to serve me versus I'm the victim of it right? That's mm -hmm. the center point where people go wrong, Okay, right? There are many people that have had the same backgrounds, say, as I did, or the, the other examples that we gave us that went the road of victim, 
where this happened to me, right? I'm the victim to all of this. And those people will not have success. It is impossible. Whereas those of us that have gained success have, have taken that as a, we are, we are the ones that are going to take control of this situation, right? Or at least perception of control. So So I think that's a turning point. Yeah, that makes sense. So for the average person that's out there and they want to learn more self-regulation, it sounds like an easy way for them to start doing that is figure out the the trauma they've had in the past and and try to find a way to no longer use that as an excuse to be a victim and use that as an, uh, a way to empower oneself. Does that sound right? The- Doing that by yourself will be challenging. Right. Uh, that was kind of where where I was going to get into the second piece of piece of this. Uh, in the the when we start talking about trauma and the effects of trauma over time, that becomes a whole nother a whole nother can of worms. When it comes to self regulation, like just so that we can give the the listener something they can do around this, let's kind of wrap that up and then we can dive deeper into the trauma side of things. Okay. Uh, when it comes to self-regulation, you don't need a trauma to build self-regulation, right? Like for, for many successful people that this as deep as I've been able to get on what's driving their, their success, this is what I've found. It's not necessarily required. You can build self-regulation in many other ways. I like to look at self-regulation like a piggy bank in that you need to be concerned with the size of your piggy bank and how much money's in it. And so when I'm thinking about my ability to self-regulate in order to stretch my bank, you know, get a bigger bank, I need to push myself to self-regulate when I have it, when I'm in the right environment with enough energy, right? So looking at opportunities to, to push yourself mentally, physically, and emotionally, at the right time in regulating those areas, right? Regulating your focus and attention, regulating your physical self-regulation, your ability to, to handle harsh conditions and or push your body beyond what it wants to be pushed, your ability to self-regulate in not only controlling what emotional state you're in, but controlling your reaction to external stimuluses in emotional states. Everyone can do that on their own. And Think of it like little, little stretches and big stretches, right? A little stretch is just a whole bunch of little stretches is just as useful as a huge push Mm -hmm. and looking for opportunities to do that throughout your life will help build or grow your bank. The second part of it is how much money's in the bank, right? So I can have a huge bank. My self-regulation bank's a really big one, but if I have worn myself down mentally, emotionally, and physically, I've spent all the dollars in that. When I now need to make a withdrawal, I don't have any money. So I need to protect my capacity. My You have the capacities of size. I have to grow my capacity and protect my capability. How much, how many resources do I have? So don't waste your self-regulation dollars. The simplest example that I can give is, is social media and news. Yeah. So social media and news are designed specifically to have you feel either scared or n- insufficient, mm. right? That's the entire thing because it's the biggest driver of a human's attention, right? right. If you can feel scared or insufficient, a human's going to look at that because those are literally con- directly connected to us living, being alive. Yeah. 
So they're designed to build that in you, which means that every time that you look at social media and feel bad about yourself, you're, you're spending $20 out of your bank. I like that. Every time you watch the news and feel scared, you're spending 50 bucks out of your bank. So when you actually need to use that self-regulation to say, focus on a difficult project at work, you've, you've wasted all your money. So that's kind of the practical, how can I increase my self-regulation? Question for you. Could you give an example of, of your time in the seals when you, did you ever have to like tap into more reserves of self-regulation? I assume you did, you know, you're on a mission every day, every day. It was, yeah, there's, we, it was Wednesday night or Thursday night. It was Thursday night of hell week. No, it would have been Wednesday night of hell week. You know, worst for us is the fifth week of training. At this point, I've been up for three days straight, constant physical activity, soaking wet, freezing cold, getting yelled at the entire time. We're laying in the ocean at about one 30 in the morning it's 51 degrees in the water. It's 40, 48 degrees air temperature. We've been in the water for well over an hour. I mean, absolute misery in every, every level from mental, physical, emotional. And I remember instructor Pat Stone saying they, and they've been yelling and screaming at this point. He came in real sober, like real, like, you know, just talking to us. And he, and he said, I want all of you to really connect to how, miserable you are how much pain you're in how cold you are right now how tired you are and then he paused this like long pause and then he said you're going to just to be clear when you get into the seals you think this is it like you think this is the hard part you're going to get into the teams and mark my words someday you're going to be on a mission and you're going to be colder you're going to be more miserable you're going to be in more pain you're going to be more scared right this this is gonna, and I remember thinking that's impossible. Like no way. Like this is as bad as it possibly can get. And right. then I remember laughing. It was my first deployment in Northern Arabian Gulf on a mission uh, to secure uh, oil tankers, and I was colder than I'd ever been in my life. Like it made that day in the ocean seem like child's play. And I was wow. sitting there in the boat laughing, just like. Thinking of instructor Pat Stone and laughing like, yep, he's right. And it is absolutely true. Many times throughout my career, I was more miserable. Like it's people, they, they say in buds, everyone wants to be a seal at the bar on Friday, yeah. right? Like no one wants to be a seal. It's just, a, it's just a shitty job. Like it's a horrible <laughs> job that you don't get paid well to do. That is just miserable on a daily basis. Like, 90% of the time, it just sucks. Like yeah. everything about it sucks. 8% of the time, it's cool. Like you get to do something that's really neat. And 2% of the time, if you're lucky, it's, I think the, it's the epitome of what humans can do together. Like okay. to coordinate action at that level in these environments with this level of risk, with this level of consequence, it's, there's nothing like that. And, and that's, I think, where a human will feel the most success in life is in tightly coordinated action with other humans. You start adding risk and difficulty and it just doesn't get any better than that. And it's those like one to 2% of times that, that you live for the 8% of the time where it's like, okay, now, now I know why I do this, but 90% of the time it just sucks. So yeah. the short answer, that was a long answer to say, yeah, it was like every day it was a, a need to self-regulate or at least every other day. 
That 2% that you talk about, I'm fascinated with because I'm thinking of the situations in my life, but also that I know of where people experience that and they kind of thrive on that. And so from my experience, you know, people experience that maybe at, I mean, Woodstock might be an example Mm -hmm. of that. Different types of concerts or festivals, uh, like Burning Man might be something where uh, people experience that. Tony Robbins seminars or, Mm -hmm. you know, seminars where there's a lot of intensity and, and love and, and, and just motivation there. Do you know any other experiences? Actually, I did a men's leadership seminar where we had to build like three homes in a hundred hours or something like that. We experienced that. Uh, Do you know other experiences where people can, can do that more often? Cause I think for people to understand the potential of human uh, like what we can do as humans together, we need to be experience, experiencing more of that on a regular basis, not just once in our life at a concert or a festival or, you know, it, uh, a city goes into riot and you, you know, save your family, but something or, you know, somebody's crushed by a car and a bunch of people come and pick it up, right? Where are some scenarios when we, we can do that more often? I think the better question is, what are the ingredients of that and why okay because i think if if we understand that then we can we can create the right situations is that can i answer that question yeah please yeah please okay so there's a there's a fundamental truth that that i believe that i based my entire business i'd say i based my entire life on Mm -hmm. uh this this truth is something that I believe can be life-changing if, if understood and applied. I believe that as a human, my success in life is 100% dependent on my ability to coordinate action with others. Okay. Now success, I break into two pieces. I believe that success at its fundamental core is an optimized daily experience that's sustainable over time. Okay. I believe that we get it wrong in putting that success equals accomplishments, right? Set a goal and achieve it mm-hmm. is what most people would define success as. That if you set goals and achieve it, if you produce accomplishments but are miserable in the production of the accomplishments, you are not successful. So it's two sides, right? The experience of success is one half of success and the accomplishments are actually a outcome of the optimized daily experience that's sustainable over time. So our ability to have that optimized daily experience and produced accomplishments is only, is absolutely and only connected to our coordination of action with others. If you look at your life, anywhere you struggle or suffering, you are isolating and or not coordinating well with others. Everywhere, if you look at the, the highest point in your life, the best experience of your entire life, I guarantee that in that best experience of your life, you're in tight coordination of action with others. Mm-hmm. So this truth comes from the fact that we are ultimately cave people, right? We, yeah. If you look at you and I and looked at, at Ugg and Thug from 150,000 years ago, we are the same. The only thing that's different is our environment. Ugg and Thug lived in a world where resources were constrained and it was high risk. Right. 
we live in a world of abundance and low risk. That's the only difference between our human experiences. I would also argue that because we live in a safe environment that has abundance, uh, we are unhealthy. So if you looked at you and me versus Ugg and Thug, we're very sick cave people. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? So, and how long have we lived in a world of abundance and safety as humans? I I would guess just a little less than 100 years. Uh, There's about, right? Yeah. Like where I'm sitting in Utah 75 years ago was pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. Right? Some some places in the planet, mostly the places they sent me as a seal, people still live like cave people, exactly, right? Yeah. Absolutely yeah. resource constrained and risk. And how do they act like cave people? Yeah. Right. As soon as COVID hit, right? Perceived high risk initially, right? It wasn't high risk to start with, but perceived high risk and you couldn't get a toilet paper and immediately people are clubbing each other like cave people in <laughs> Walmart, right? So since we are cave people, and we've been cave people for 200,000 years, mm-hmm. our every brain, our brain cell, every cell in our body, every neuron in our brain is designed to make us function well as cave people. Mm-hmm. And as a cave person, the most important thing in a cave person's life was the tribe. Right. If I'm not part of the tribe, I'm dead. Right. Therefore, we are programmed that tightly coordinated action towards a shared goal or objective if there is risk and there's consequence to not doing it, that is what we're designed to do that. And we thrive in an environment where we can have tightly coordinated action towards a shared desired end state. Yeah. In an environment where there's risk and consequence. When we do that well, we experience success. We experience fulfillment. We experience joy. We experience connection. So that's why all of the environments that you talked about have those ingredients right tightly coordinated action shared desired end state when i say desired end state i mean a shared desire to create an emotional experience and avoid other emotional states okay right like burning man is all about producing an emotional state that everyone kind of wants and to avoid the emotional states we don't want like that's very clear yeah notice that in burning man there's actually something to do right burn the man yeah right so we're all working towards that look at how many projects that are show are brought right where people are building these things and they're building the things for the group not for their individual satisfaction right yeah and you're out in the desert where there's risk and consequence to not coordinating action Right. That's why Burning Man hits all four of those things and why it produces that feeling of success in the humans that attain it or go there. And so in our life, if we want to do that, we need to focus on where can we have tightly coordinated action with humans that we care about? Where can we have a shared desired end state where we have some some emotional state that we all want to produce and we want to avoid? Mm-hmm how do we make sure that we're aware of the risk or consequences to to not doing it and where do we create that environment of of clarity around what we're doing that purpose that's driving us together you do that then you can create those feelings in any environment that's uh, i love how you dissect that is that what you were doing when you were doing your missions and leading missions 
Where did you know that at the time, or is this something you figured out later? It's like I come across as real smart right now, but <laughs> I, I was an idiot for many, many years. Uh, the the like the content, a lot of what we're talking about is the content that we have in this book, right? So I just okay. laid it all out. It's very easy for people to read that and say, like, oh man, I wish I would have gone to the SEALs and they would have taught me all this. Right. That's not how it happened right? None of these things that I'm sharing, I was ever taught. What really how I how I came to these uh, understandings was uh, reverse engineering. So I had the, the honor and privilege of being able to work in one of the, the highest functioning teams in the world. And I had the honor of going to war, right? Like I got to, to not only be part of that team, but be part of that team in the crucible of war is why, you know, what we exist to do. And then I got to start a business and series of businesses and get it completely and absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. Like it was quite sobering. Like I've done the hardest thing in the world, in the hardest environments, like business is going to be easy. It was not based yeah. on the fact that I didn't know these principles and I just made the assumption like everyone else, well, I'll just start a business and be successful. It was in then looking and having to diagnose it saying, why is this failure occurring when I've had all of this success before. And it was in looking at the negative and the positive that I identified the principles that I wasn't, uh, wasn't living to, which was creating the the lack of performance. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I noticed you mentioned too, Larry, that after retiring, you switched to a different type of battlefield, like as we're talking about the, the business battlefield, but using words in love as your weapons. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. The, so I should have never been a seal. Like when I, (laughs) because of physical capabilities or, or why? No. Um, it is a, not in alignment with the truth of who I am. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So my, I became a seal, as I said, at the very beginning, because I was scared. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Because I wanted to, to survive, prove that I was, I was not weak. I needed to be strong to defend against, against those, let's call it harms or injuries that, that others uh, gave to me. Okay. My part of, I think what, what hurt so much as a kid is I care so much. Like I, I love so hard. I want to be uh, I want to help. I want to be part. I want to, to, uh, be connected. Mm-hmm. And yet because of the, the autism, I couldn't. Okay. And so I went kind of imagine this, if I put it into this, this, this way of saying it, uh, my heart is so big and I love so hard that the way that I'm going to express my love is through violence. Wow. Like it, it's literally soul tearing. Yeah right to to express this much care and like because the the level that at which i cared about our country the level at which i cared about the seal standing next to me i would have the greatest thing i could ever imagine was sacrificing my life for one of my men right like that was the epitome because i cared i had so much love and care yet the the way to bring that love and care into the world is through violence it's that's part of the reason that that I've suffered from significant post-traumatic stress for Mm. 10 years, like that healing process of, of being able to say, well, like 
almost kind of my soul was torn in the way that I decided to illustrate my love and care. The that's why I've dedicated my life, my second half of my life to, to bringing connection into the world. Hmm. Like to me, I'm doing it generally in the business realm, but the whole purpose of business is to bring people together to support each other. Right. To me, it, it is almost the ultimate expression of, of love, of bringing connection into the world. Yeah. And then we focus, what's cool is we focus on bringing more connection into businesses that are bringing connection into the world. It's like, it's the, to me, the opposite, right? Being able to, to take the, the, the violence through which I learned some of these unbelievably uh, true principles of performance and being able to now, instead of through explosives and bullets, bringing that into the world through through principles, through bring that love into the world, through learn teaching and, and coaching consulting. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's, I'm just filling the holes that I created in the first half of my life. Did you realize this after you retired or was it during your service? Yeah, I've, I realized this when I started to heal. So the first uh, seven, eight years of my entrepreneurial life, I was, mm -hmm. I was, deep in the, the, the damage that I, I caused myself, right? Like I, I'm yeah. not a victim to what happened to me. I caused myself all of this damage and I was working in business simply to try and, uh, be safe, like yeah. create enough resources to be safe, but from a place of, of injury, trauma and stress and uh, that those businesses weren't all that successful like we produced revenue we produced change but in the production of of that that money and that change in people's lives we uh specifically me was always suffering and to okay. me no matter how much money i make or how many lives i change if i'm miserable on a daily basis it, they're not successful and it wasn't until i started to heal to put focused attention on healing myself that all of a sudden my, my businesses started to, uh, to change and in the changing produce more change, more revenue and more, uh, daily success for me. And that's where, you know, one of the most, I'd say, I don't know, statements, edgy statements that I make is that for a business that is, let's say structurally sound, meaning it's got all its parts, marketing, yeah. sales, fulfillment support, right? It's got all the parts. They got a product. People want to buy the product. The biggest limitation of growth to a structurally sound company are the unresolved traumas of the, the leader, yeah. the CEO. Yeah. The, it's amazing how that works, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm super curious because I've been into personal growth for like 15 years now mm -hmm. and absolutely love it. And I'm curious, what are some ways that you chose to heal yourself going through that process that really helped you in other areas of your life? Uh, for me, the entry point was, was kind of your, your boilerplate personal development. Like I was okay. the biggest, I had the biggest negative approach to like Tony Robbins and all that. So I just thought it was a bunch of weak people, you know, oh, yeah. doing masturbation. Like, I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that I was big anti all of that stuff. And, and finally my life got so miserable 
And from the outside, you wouldn't know, like from the outside, everyone would point to say how, look at how successful this person is in in all these different ways. But my, for me, what really triggered is I was starting to lose the people I cared about so much in my life. And I was willing to do anything because I won't quit at anything. So someone off said, Hey, you should go, go to this seminar and and they, he tricked me. He was one of my Naval Academy buddies. He's like, it's a leadership development seminar. And I'm like, okay, I'll go do some leadership development thing. And I show up and I, the people that were in the room, I'm like, these are not leaders. Like, this is not a leadership <laughs> development thing. But, you know, just how uncomfortable I was being in the room, like, I'm here because I'm miserable. I'm just going to, I'm going full in. Whatever, if they ask for volunteer, I'm raising my hand. If they ask us to do something, I'm going to do it the best I can. And, yeah. and that was a starting point. So it was about a year of just, kind of hardcore traditional personal development work in different programs. Then uh, from there, I'd been doing research for years on the use of uh, psychedelics and MDMA for post-traumatic stress healing. Yeah. And uh, I was able to find a group in Fort Lauderdale that supported me in that. So I spent about a year uh, hardcore in in uh, therapeutic use of, of different, both natural and chemical compounds to, to heal post-traumatic stress. That was the next evolution of it. Yeah. Eventually there's diminishing returns yeah. on that because the, the drugs are a trick uh, yeah. which cause neuro, neurochemical problems. Yeah. So very useful, messy, inefficient, and eventually the cost outweighed the, the gains, but it, it played a key role. And then uh, from their deep work in trauma. So that for me was the next big step was really understanding what trauma is, how it affects the world. And then for me, uh, I was, I built, built out systems for, for changing trauma on the, the brain level, the neurological level through mm-hmm. uh, linguistic patterns. Okay. Uh, that was the next step. And then the last step in my journey is I uh, found a group out of uh, out of uh, Boston that uses uh, different methods to influence uh, neurochemistry through the biome. So through mm-hmm. the, the GI tract, uh, the bacteria in our gut. And so they're naturally influencing neurochemistry through that. And that's been the last, that's where I've been the last chunk of my, my time. And, and I've really seen the biggest changes because they're actually it's not a drug. They're just kind of re let's say re sculpting the bacterial landscape in our guts, which then directly changes neurochemistry and yeah. therefore our nervous system. What was that very first, uh, conference seminar leadership seminar that you went to? Yeah. So it was called, uh, ALA Ascension leadership Academy out of San Diego. So it was, uh, heard of them. Yeah. yeah, there's, uh, there's that kind of core of land landmark was one of them yeah. uh there's I, the size seminars gratitude training is another kind yeah. of offshoot of it there's there's about five that all came from that core piece yeah uh, ala i believe is sim- or along the same lines of the gratitude training if that means if that means anything to you i mean there's okay. kind of groups all over the country that do that so that was kind of the foundation of their their training you mentioned uh, creating systems for yourself to change the neuro linguistic programming um, yeah. and your thought process. 
Could you share more about that? Because that's something I, I'm really into. I think most entrepreneurs and listeners are into. I was um, hanging out with a friend recently, and she was telling me when she was a child, she had, she had so much trauma, and she listed all the extreme negative things or feelings that she had around her psyche and her self-image. And when she was hurt, what she would do is feel those so intensely until they either came numb or she became comfortable with it. And I thought to myself, man, that is an extremely traumatic thing for a child to do, you know, someone under the age of 18. And because you're just creating these, these neural pathways in your brain and belief systems around that, now, whether she knows it or not, she's operating on that level, you know, from that place quite often, which is create, you know, giving her the circumstances in her life. So I'd love to dissect that a bit more yeah. on how you do. Yeah, that. you're going to love this. Okay, good. Yeah, we might not have enough time, but uh, <laughs> I think you're going to you're going to enjoy this quite a bit. So let me where do I start? First off, are commonly held and I say are I think humans commonly held at least Americans, uh, I've, I've worked with some outside of America, so I can't say all humans, but at least Americans are commonly held understanding of what trauma is, is creates the trap of trauma for, for most of us. Okay. If you ask someone, what is traumatic? Like what is trauma? What is traumatic? They're going to give you large examples of trauma going to war, losing a loved one, sexual assault, physical assault, massive accident, right? Massive injury. Mm -hmm. Those are all very different. Some of us experienced one or, or multiple of those things. Most of us have not. Right. Right. So most people you would ask, have you been traumatized? Have you suffered a trauma in your life? And they would say no. Right. And in that becomes the trap. Mm -hmm. If you look at those five things that I mentioned, they're all very, very different, but there's one common thread among all of them. And this was, this for me was one of the big entry points into this. The thing that makes sexual assault and war the same is perceived loss of control. Okay. So if you look at any of those things, war, loss of a loved one, sexual assault, physical assault, massive accident, you know, uh, injury. The only thing that's the same is that the human that is experiencing it has a perception is that their control has been taken away from them right. in regard to their safety. Now, if we look at it from a cave person perspective, I can take someone at Sam at teaching at a seminar and I take a guy from the front row and pull him up onto the stage and say, Hey, you know what? I'm tired. You finished teaching for me he'll have the same physiological and neurochemical responses as if I jumped off the stage and went to stab him in his chest. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So think about that as a human being. Yeah. We can't distinguish the difference between real, real risk and perceived risk. What makes him have the same neurochemical and physical responses of a, a knife attack versus speaking on front in front of the audience is the fact that he doesn't, he has a perception that he doesn't have control. Mm -hmm. So as a human being, anytime that we perceive that we don't have control, we are in a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Now, as a child, before we are logical, it doesn't take much for us to have a perception that we don't have control that we can tie to life and death. So 
every human experiences times where they have perceptions that they don't have control and therefore they have experienced trauma. I want to stop there. That's kind of the first step. And then there's going to be a second step after. Okay. Got it. Thoughts? No. Yeah, I'm following. This is awesome. Okay. So then now we get into the next piece. We have to separate traumatic experience from traumatic environment from trauma. Those are three different things. We talk about them all the same way. Yeah. So a traumatic experience happens in some environment, which then ties our trauma to that environment. If I have a traumatic experience and I don't live, do I experience trauma? Right before you die, maybe. Right? No. But, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, you're no not going to Yeah. You're not carrying it with you after you die. I would assume. That, so trauma only exists if you survive a traumatic experience. Okay. That's a big, because we mix all this stuff together. Mm-hmm. Trauma is, is merely the lesson that I learned in surviving the traumatic experience. Okay. Trauma is a lesson. That's it. But what if we don't learn from it? The trauma still exists there, no? We're, the majority of the learning happens on the subconscious, not the conscious. Okay. Right? So our subconscious's job is to keep us alive. We experience a traumatic experience where our control is taken away. Mm-hmm. The subconscious thinks it's going to die. If okay. it survives, then it's going to know how we survive. So trauma is merely the subconscious lesson we learned in surviving an environment where we perceive we had no control. Okay. Got it. Is this good or bad? It's good as long as we continue to exist in the traumatic environment. Okay. So I'll give a simple example. Go back to K people. I'm a K person. I go down to the river to pick mushrooms. It's a nice sunny day. So I decide to sit on this fuzzy orange and black rock. I sit on the rock. It turns out to be a tiger. It turns around, rips off half my face. Okay. Everything in my body and mind is designed to save my life first. As soon as my life is saved, everything in my body and mind is designed to figure out how the hell did that happen? Right. Right. So learning immediately follows survival. Right. This happens instantaneously, right, on a subconscious level. So in that moment, I know that fuzzy orange and black things are tigers. That becomes true. Tigers can kill me. I got to stay away from tigers. Those things are wired into my brain instantaneously. Right. I go back to my cave that night. I fall asleep. I have nightmares about it. Rewiring. I poke my head out of the cave. A bird flies by. I immediately think tiger. Rewiring. Right. Trauma is the lesson. Fuzzy orange and black things are tigers. Tigers can kill me. Stay away from tigers. Now, I leave my cave three days later. The only thing my conscious mind wants is no tigers, correct? Right. As soon as I, put, I walk down the, cave, down the path and there's a bush, what does my subconscious do to the bush but put a tiger behind it? Yeah. So my, my subconscious wants me to be in an environment where there's a tiger because it now knows how to have control in that environment. Yeah. That separation from what the conscious wants from what the subconscious needs to feel safe is where stress lives. Yeah. Makes so sense. as long as there's tigers around me, it works. And if there's not, as soon as there's no tigers around me or the environment changes, now all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore 
right. what became true in that moment is no longer true. And in that untruth, I create stress. So right. two months later, there's some noise in the cave complex. I go down there, I look and the tiger killing tribe moves in next door. They wear tiger skins. My subconscious will immediately make them wrong and dangerous and I'll go hide. That's yes. the worst thing that could happen to me. In that moment, I'm living in an untruth that was true in a different environment. Yeah. That is post-traumatic stress. Yes. All post-traumatic stress is, is the stress caused by living in an untruth because the environment has changed from the traumatic environment in which I learned the truth. I'll how pause do, here. How do we rewire that? So you can rewire that all sorts of different ways. How do you, you have to rewire it mentally, physically, emotionally, energetically, right? Right. What I'll do is the shortcut for me is on the mental side. So if you look and talk to someone enough, you can identify the linguistic pattern in which they, they create their truth from their trauma. We as humans can live in untruth. I can live in a world where something, you know, that this is a purple, you know, a pink book. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's blue, but I can live in a world where it's pink. I can't live in a world where it's pink and blue. So okay. if I can, I get the, the linguistic patterns of your untruth, I can create an inverse of those. The inverse of those, you have to make a choice. I can't live in a world where it's white and black. I can live in a world where it's white or black. That gives you a doorway out of your trauma. Hmm. So that's how that's how I'm hacking. When I'm working with people on this, that's how I'm hacking their trauma. Identify their untruths, create a linguistic inverse of the untruths, then seed that linguistic inverse. Now, this is what blows me away. Your individual trauma, your experience with a tiger is yours and yours alone. Mm -hmm. The stories you make up about it, the untruths you make up about it, start to become a little more universal. Okay. The truths, the inverse of your story, your trauma is universally true. That's what brought me back to believing that there's something greater than me. Mm -hmm. It's impossible that an individual experience can produce a universal truth unless there's universal truth. That's what, what blows me away. That's incredible. You know, when you were telling that story, I kept thinking that if the caveman would have given the tiger mushrooms, the tiger wouldn't have attacked him and, and, <laughs> and there would be no trauma whatsoever. By the river. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, tiger, caveman having a wonderful time, letting go of trauma together. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is fantastic. Like I've I, I've really, you know, I, I when I come on podcasts and when I do podcast interviews quite often. You know, I'm taking notes myself and there's key points here that you've really suggested that are that took us down rabbit holes that I didn't even expect, you know, like over half the notes I had on here, we didn't even talk about. But learning, I think that's one of the most powerful things that people can do. And, and you laid it out really well that, you know, trauma comes from us feeling like we don't have control, right? And that we can reprogram this trauma so it becomes a universal or we start to believe the universal truth and this is something all of us can do and then i think that also probably helps us tap into our 
remind me how you termed it, uh, the reserve, the uh, self-regulation, self-regulation and, and, and what we create in life. And so all of those are, are very key points that I think any entrepreneur or person can take away and, and learn so much from. If we're going to wrap this up here, Larry, what are some final, final words of wisdom you'd like to take away? And then if the listeners want to reach out and learn more about your book and what you have going on, where could they do that? I would say we, we covered this, but the two things I just want to reiterate is that as an entrepreneur, if you truly want to experience success in your life, right, produce success in your life, understanding that success is an optimized daily experience that's sustainable over time mm-hmm. is the most important piece because it's very easy for us to create prisons in our, in our entrepreneurship journey. Right. You know, we do this for freedom. Yeah, we found that we find ourselves stuck in a, a prison of of suffering and effort, and and that's not the the place. That suffering comes from focusing on accomplishments versus daily experience. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big piece. The second one is that that if you want to experience that success on a daily basis, and are want to have those accomplishments that come with it. The one thing you need to focus on all the time is creating the coordination of action with others. As you were talking about giants or some of your audience's digital nomads, that can be a challenge where all of a sudden we're on our own, you know, and alone. And, and in that sense, you know, that can get, that can go against the, the foundational principle that our success comes from team and being able to, to keep, present to that where are we creating that environment where we have tightly coordinated action where we have a a shared desired end state where we understand the risk and and we're all pulling for the the same outcome Uh, yeah that that world creating that world will produce those feelings of success and the accomplishments will follow absolutely i love that larry if the listeners want to reach out and learn more about your book and what you have going on where can they do that so uh, the book is How Leadership Actually Works. And there's a website from the same names. Uh, you go there. That's where you can find out more about the book. Uh, we have uh, some assessments based on the content in the book. And uh, it would direct us to direct you to the additional uh, things that we do as a company with, with consulting and coaching and that type of stuff. And the other side, uh, I've been uh, with not a big social media fan, but my my girlfriend has produced a Instagram channel that I'm get, becoming quite proud of. So nice. I love to do uh, amazing, you know, fun, exciting things. So uh, Larry does cool shit is my uh, <laughs> Instagram handle. And I'm going to follow you I right now to do all sorts of cool, cool shit on there. So if you have interest to see kind of the fun things that I do, that's, that's a fun place to go as well. I'm following you right now. Um, <laughs> You do you guys do live events like uh, seminars or workshops or retreats or anything like that? We do uh, for generally for clients. So one of gotcha. the, the most powerful that we do is the work on that trauma, right? Where we spend time digging into the individual to identify their untruths uh, and create the the freedom from those. We do that. Uh, we do mo- a lot of workshops for the companies that we work with. Uh, yeah. We also do some mixed ones. So if, if you're, you don't have a big team, then we, we mix them together. 
we haven't done any big live events with with a whole lot of people, but that might be in the future. Very cool. I love it, man. Larry, I appreciate you so, so much for coming on the show and sharing all your wisdom with us and, and sharing your stories and methods. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.